good morning again, Missio Church. It's great to be able to gather together as God's people and worship our risen and victorious King. Uh, my name's Bernie. I'm one of the elders on staff here, and it's a privilege to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. We're uh, on the tail end of our series as we've worked our way through um, Paul's letter to the, Coloss- the Colossian church um, just uh, a little bit, a couple more weeks, and we'll be wrapping this up and uh, be continuing back in our series through the Psalms for the remainder of the year. Uh, but we find ourselves this morning in Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 6. Colossians chapter 4, beginning with verse 2. This is God's word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Would you again just uh, spend a moment praying with me? Father, we come to you and uh, we ask for your help, your aid, as we are confronted by your very word at work through your spirit in this time um, to show us again the supremacy of Christ, his worth, and how we ought to respond. Father, I pray that uh, this time would be fruitful and uh, for your glory. So, Father, may now the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Several years ago, I had the, uh, the privilege of visiting the Sistine Chapel in Rome. And inside, tourists are, are uh, brought in and they get to view what is perhaps one of the greatest uh, artistic uh, accomplishments that's ever happened. And that is Michelangelo's painting of the Last Judgment on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. It's, it's absolutely breathtaking. But before you are uh, allowed entrance into the chapel, uh, whoever's with you, the tour guide that's taking you through Uh, the building, they stop you outside of the chapel and they tell you about um, certain, certain things that are expected of you after you've been granted access to this magnificent place. And and actually, uh, our tour guide prepared us uh, not just before we entered the chapel, but uh, several times throughout our tour, at the very beginning of our tour, when we gather, he prepared us. When you enter the chapel, this is 
uh, how you're expected to conduct yourself. Uh, and midway through the tour, we had stopped for just a break because we'd been walking, and he reminded us, when, when you're ushered into the chapel, this is how you will uh, act and behave in this marvelous place. And it involved both our speech and our actions. They were to coincide with the, the access that we've been granted to this place. Once inside, there was to be silence. No talking. They, they asked that you just go into the chapel and you just soak it in with your, with your eyes. And every so often, I mean, inevitably people would talk and there would be this low roar of whisper and, and, and maybe above that. And every so often, uh, one of the gentlemen towards the front would speak into a microphone, silencio, just to remind us of what was expected of us when we, as we were in this amazing place. And in addition, there were to be no pictures. You, you, you're not supposed to take pictures of, uh, of this uh, marvelous, marvelous painting. So both our speech and our action were to coincide with, which, uh, with the place to which we'd been granted access. And I tell you that because Paul has spent the, the first several chapters of this epistle telling us about a new existence, a new place into which Christ's people have been brought. In 113, if you recall, Paul declares that the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we've been brought into this new place. And then it, it, just a little bit later in 3, uh, 1 and 3, he tells us, since we have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is. We're with him at the right hand of the Father. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right? So um, we have, uh, Paul says, a new existence, a new reality, a new residence. As one pastor put it, a new zip code. As Christians, as people indwelt by the Spirit of God. We, we, we are in God's kingdom. We sit at the right hand of the Father in Christ. And now that we are in that room, we're to live in a certain way in keeping with that room. We're to conduct ourselves in certain ways. And, and what Paul is talking about here is, is not a new way to gain entrance into the room. It's not like the Old Testament law has been set aside, but now here are the new rules for gaining access to this new, this new zip code, this new residence, this new location. No, uh, this isn't a new burden Paul is placing on the people of God. We've been granted access already and ushered into this amazing existence. And Paul is simply informing us of this new way of life. Uh, and the last weeks we've seen how the supremacy of Christ informs our relationships. How this new existence into we've which we've been ushered, how it informs our relationship with uh, our family, with, with our spouse, with our, with our children, with our parents, 
Uh, last week we looked at how it informs our relationship with our employer, our boss. And this week Paul is extending this thought further. How does this new kingdom into which we've been ushered, how does the supremacy of Christ, how it calls us to new patterns and practices with those outside of the church, with those who don't identify with Christ. And as we've graciously had our eyes open to, uh, to Christ's matchless worth and been reconciled to him, we now conduct ourselves in such a way that that supremacy of Christ, which we've uh, fallen in love with, which, which we've been amazed by, how that can now be recognized by the people and the community around us. So Paul begins by telling us that the supremacy of Christ calls us to persistent prayer. Look at verse two again. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Hear this, Christian, brother and sister in Christ. We have the privilege of going to God, the sovereign one. That means the king, the one who controls all things. Like it's not just maybe he's got a shot at it. No, he controls all things. The one who can orchestrate everything. And we have the the privilege and the access to lay our requests before him. And so, friends, brothers and sisters, we should willingly and joyfully avail ourselves of this blessing. And this persistent prayer that, that Paul calls us to is to be characterized by watchfulness. Look at verse two again. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. Now, why does Paul say being watchful in prayer? What is he saying by by this idea of watchfulness? Well, uh, you recall that Jesus warned his disciples and said, watch and pray. Same word, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. So Paul is likely calling us to be prayerful about the seductions and the temptations into which our enemy would love us to fall, into which uh, Satan would love to trap us. Greed, comfort at any cost, pride, self-righteousness, lust. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. But Paul is probably also calling us with this watchfulness to fix our attention on the coming of the Lord Jesus. You recall when uh, Jesus uh, in Mark 13 is talking about the end, he says, keep awake. It's the same word, to watch. Keep watching. Keep awake. It says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows in the morning, lest he come and suddenly find you asleep. And what I say to all, I say to you, keep awake, be watchful. You see, our hope in this life is not in some political fixes, not in, in social movements or transformation, but in the return of our king. And so we pray willingly and longingly, Maranatha, come, Lord 
Jesus. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. The supremacy of Christ calls us to persistent prayer characterized by watchfulness. In addition, this persistent prayer is characterized by thanksgiving. Look at it again, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, think about what Paul's been telling this church in Colossae the whole time. He's been warning them against a false teaching that says, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to add in X, Y, and Z, right? And here, he's calling the Christians to be watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. What a great weapon against the false teaching with which the Colossians were faced, which, which were constantly barraged. Thanking the Father for the completed work of the Son applied by the Spirit that destroys that destructive, sinful instinct that we have that we must somehow add to what Jesus has done, what Jesus has accomplished in his perfect, sinless life and by his death and resurrection. Give thanks for God's work in reconciliation. Give thanks for his grace, unearned favor. Give thanks for his undeserved mercy. Give thanks that even though now we struggle with sinful impulses and temptations, just like we confessed, just like Nate led us in prayer, that we are seated at the right hand of God because we had an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Recount his abundant work and praise. See, the, the, the supremacy of Christ calls us to persistent prayer that is characterized by watchfulness and thanksgiving. And finally, Paul clarifies that this persistent prayer is to be characterized by petitions for opportunities to make Christ known clearly. Look at it with me again. Verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, you've got to think, it's odd that Paul, a man imprisoned, we don't know what the, what the situation's exactly like, if he's got rats crawling around him, if he's, you know, literally in stocks, in chains, uh, he's in prison. He doesn't have freedom. It's odd that Paul, as an imprisoned man, that this is what he's requesting, right? If I'm Paul, I'm praying, uh, God, sure, open some doors for the word, but could you open the prison door as well, please? Right? Because then I can get out and I can open, I can declare the mystery of Christ. But Paul is praying for open doors for the word. Now, there's no question that it would have been perfectly legit for Paul to pray for that open prison door, to pray for his freedom. But instead, he does simply ask for open doors to make the preeminence of Christ known. And not only that, he asks, he pleads with the Father that those opportunities 
in those opportunities, he would be granted clarity, which is, which is how Christ should be made known. And so what this tells us is if, if there is uh, any shot at men, women, and children to know Christ, it will be by the work of God from beginning to end. That is why we pray. That is why we pray for these opportunities. We pray because salvation is the work of God, not our frantic efforts. Because try as we may, we're not gonna knock down any doors of anybody's heart. We're not gonna crash through. We ask God to act. Because again, he's the sovereign one who can orchestrate everything perfectly according to his will. He is the one that can do it. Now, Paul is recognizing himself as an instrument in the process. Yeah, God uses people. God uses his church. He's making Christ known through his proclamation, but even the opportunities he has, those would not be available had God not made them available. God, the sovereign one. Brothers and sisters, may we as the people of God plead with our Father to grant his church opportunity to make Christ known and to make him known with clarity. So Christ's supremacy calls us to persistent prayer characterized by watchfulness, by thanksgiving, and by opportunities for the church to clearly bear witness to Christ. But Paul's view of the supremacy of Christ calls us not only to persistent prayer for ourselves and, and for others, but to careful conduct with others. In other words, the, the supremacy of Christ calls us to intentional interactions with outsiders. The, the supremacy of Christ calls us to intentional interactions characterized by walking in wisdom. Look at verse 5 with me. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. There's a, there's a saying that uh, I've heard for many years, kind of tossed around the church, sometime abused, but uh, there's truth to it. And I think it summarizes this verse. And it says that those outside the church may never open and read the scriptures, but they will read our lives. And so we should live each moment in their presence with a deliberate and careful attention to our actions, using every opportunity to love them, to serve them, to do them good. Walking in wisdom means taking the time when, when we are, our schedule is crammed, when we are pressured to listen to people, to listen to their cares, to hear their concerns, to, to, to listen to their scars and wounds and fears. Walking in wisdom means compassionately living and caring for people. It entails using our resources for those around us. Walking in, in wisdom means spending our time selflessly. I'm sure we all recognize Again, even as Nate confessed that we squander moments of our lives, we've squandered opportunities with 
classmates, with roommates, coworkers, with family members, because we've just relentlessly been pursuing our own pleasure or just giving in to laziness, maybe, maybe defiantly walking in disobedience. But brother and sister in Christ, let's determine by God's grace and the aid of his spirit to cast those things aside. Let's joyfully serve others in the face of our busyness, despite the inconvenience that it creates, despite the cost to our comforts and our plans. The supremacy of Christ calls us to intentional interactions characterized by walking in wisdom. But even more, we're taught that the supremacy of Christ calls us to intentional interactions characterized by worthy words. Look at verse 6. Let your speech always, always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Our speech entails our, our conversation, our our interactions with a, with a harsh supervisor, our communication with a selfish roommate, phone conversation with mom, our Facebook and Twitter posts. This and so much more is our speech. Let your speech always, always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Our, our words are worthy of the Lord when they are gracious. And, and hear this, though our conversations aren't always directly about grace, about the grace of Christ, our conversation won't always be about grace. They should always be filled with grace. They should show the graciousness of the Lord in that they're loving and they're kind, even when it's undeserved. Harshness, rudeness, shortness, that those things don't demonstrate the new age into which we've been ushered by Christ as God's people. Snap judgments about people, whether they're public or they're uh, just somebody in our community, and framing them in the worst possible way. Those things will be absent from gracious speech, speech that is always gracious Unguarded words will be few and far between because our speech will always be gracious. Furthermore, our, our words are worthy of the Lord when they are seasoned with salt. There's an old Dallas professor named Howard Hendricks. He was noted for uh, repeating the old, uh, an old saying but adding on to it. He said, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That's true but you can feed him some salt, right? In other words, you make the, thirst, the, the, the horse thirsty. You, you can't necessarily uh, cause the horse just to thirst just by wanting it. But if you provide him with something, if you feed him something, you give him salt, well, that may help. So I wonder, does the, the manner in which we talk about our workplace, our families, our politics, the world events. Does that, 
do those things create spiritual thirst for those that are listening? Does that cause spiritual thirst to emerge? Or is it just more of the same that's all around us? Are we just brought into the drone of the world around us? Our way and our words should lead people to question us about our way and our words, about Christ. Our words should be an invitation to the riches of Christ. They should be appetizing, seasoned with salt. So does our speech about presidential politics, the coronavirus, societal ills, provoke questions about the supremacy of Christ, his rule and reign over all, or are they just unredeemed, wasted words, lost in the cultural flood of words? Jason Keith Allen recently wrote in Table Talk, it's actually August Table Talk magazine, he helpfully summarized these words. He says, truth without love may be harsh and will likely win no one. Love without truth is mush and will win them to nothing helpful. See, the supremacy of Christ calls us to intentional interactions characterized by walking in wisdom and worthy words. May we, as the people of Christ, who have had our eyes open to the worth of Christ, his supremacy, may we conduct our lives, may we pray, may we walk, may we speak, that his glories may be broadcast. May we live a life in keeping with this new, amazing, breathtaking room into which we've been ushered this new existence into, what, into which we've been granted access, the kingdom of God, the forgiveness of sins. May we, as a people loved by the Father, conduct our lives in a way that we are postured to love and serve others. May we be a people marked by persistent prayer and intentional interactions for the fame of Christ and for the good of our city. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We are grateful for the favor with which you have uh, looked upon us, not because of anything worthy in us, but because of your Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you for all the spiritual blessings that we have in him. And so, Lord, we thank you for the calling to be your people. And I pray for all of us this morning that we would live a life by the the aid and power of your Holy Spirit to live a life worthy of that calling. May we depend upon you in prayer, not thinking that we are anything of ourselves, that we can do anything in and of ourselves, but may we depend upon you 
discipline us to be consistent, steadfast, regular in prayer. Give us selfless hearts, hearts that long to serve and love others. Grant us wisdom by your Spirit to conduct ourselves for your honor and your glory in our workplaces, in our classrooms, in our homes. And may you tame our tongues that we may be gracious, that we may meet harshness and cruelty with peace and love, that our tongues would be seasoned with salt, that we may take every opportunity to point to your reign and your rule to the supremacy of your Son. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.